This podcast, episode 43, begins a new chapter. I was not initially certain what to call it. I thought maybe the Christian stigmata. But Brenda, who loves all things simple, suggested claiming the marks of Christ, which captures the difference between actuality and pretext. Either way, I had in mind St. Paul's epistle to the Christians of Galatia, chapter 6, verse 17, where he wrote, I bear in my body the marks, or in the original Greek, the stigmata of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first century Greco-Roman world in which Paul lived, stigmata were marks pricked or cut, someone like a tattoo, or branded on a body of a slave or a soldier. They showed who a slave belonged to, or very often what general a soldier served, since an army at that time was usually more loyal and devoted to a particular commander than it was to their country or their city-state. Many religious devotees also were marked in this way, marked with the sign of their God. The nail holes in Jesus' hands and feet, the gaping stab wound in his side, the cuts on his head made by the crown of thorns, the flesh viciously ripped from his back by lead-tipped whips were the marks, the stigmata of Christ's love for God and for humanity. Five times Paul himself was given 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was pummeled with rocks and stones and left for dead. No doubt, Paul's body literally bore the scars of his unswerving, unflinching devotion to Christ. And those scars were his stigmata. The stigmata or Mark's Galatians 6.17, are then the literal scars left on Paul's body. They are also, of course, the metaphorical or spiritual marks identifying his consecration to Christ, his devotion to the Jesus way. Paul has, uh, was, uh, a highly literate person who frequently quoted the Greek poets and who was familiar with sophisticated philosophical and theological thought. He was comfortable with the allegorical and typological method of rabbinical biblical interpretation and easily common to his day and, and easily engaged in the allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament. Certainly, Paul understood stigmata in its literal and physical sense. But just as certain, he also understood it as a deeper mystical, uh, in a deeper mystical and metaphorical way, in a way meant to lead us into the contemplation of what it really means to bear the marks of Christ. And that's what the next several podcasts will be about. I intend then to reflect on what it means to be Christian, or at least to consider what it means to be in the process of becoming Christian. In the Acts of the Apostles, St. Luke tells Theophilus, to whom the book of Acts is addressed, 
that the disciples, meaning those who accepted, studied, and were attempting to spread the teachings of Christ as taught by the apostles, were called Christians for the very first time by people in the city of Antioch. Before that, they were known as the people of the way, meaning um, not a system of doctrine or philosophy or uh, academic theology, but simply that they were seriously attempting to pattern their manner of life after that of Jesus. In fact, a disciple of the ancient world, uh, in the ancient world, was not simply a, a pupil or student in the modern sense, but was someone who sought to absorb the thinking, the attitudes, the skills, uh, the insights of a master teacher. A disciple was someone committed to learning the secret of both the doing and the being of his or her teacher. So as the number of disciples grew after Jesus' death, they were identified as the people of the way. And then a little later, beginning in Antioch, as Christians. The English word Christian is a transliteration rather than a translation. A transliteration is a transferring of a word from the alphabet of one language into the alphabet of another language. A transliteration of the Greek word Christianos, meaning follower of Christ. It comes from uh, Christos with the added ending I-A-N-A. -A. This ending, placed at the end of a name, identified someone as a loyal follower, a devoted adherent, or as belonging to something or someone, and could even be used to indicate an individual was a servant or slave of someone. The profound commitment indicated by this ending could be to a religion, a philosophical school of thought, what we might think of as a denomination with a particular religion, or a group sharing the same political interests and goals like the Zealots or Herodians we meet in the Gospels. It was frequently used by soldiers in reference to the general or commander under whom they served. The simple was certainly not exhaustive definition then of a disciple, of, of a Christian, is someone who follows Christ, who adheres to the teachings of Jesus, who internalizes those teachings, and who has within themselves that same heart, spirit, and mind that was in Jesus. My mother was a lifelong member of the very strict and rather legalistic Churches of Christ. Although her criticism of her denomination could at times be rather stinging, she was, I guess, what might be thought of as a loyal critic. On a Sunday afternoon, not many months before her death, she said to me and to her oldest granddaughter, 
you know, the Church of Christ is my church. When I drive down the road and I see a sign that reads, the Church of Christ meets here, it makes my heart glad. She paused briefly and then she said, but you know, not everyone that, is, that says it is one is one. What my mother was saying, of course, is that becoming Christian means professing faith in Christ, but not everyone or every church that professes faith in Christ is really Christian. My mother knew that there were pastors and simple, ordinary Christians alike, members of the Church of Christ, who were saintly um, in their character, in their goodness of heart, and in their unusual wisdom, and that there were those professed Christians of every social status and of every denomination, including churches of Christ, who were mean-hearted, greedy, immoral, inwardly rotten. She knew this because she was an intelligent observer of people. And she knew it because it's what Jesus said simply and clearly and straightforwardly in the Gospels. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, for example. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Go away from me, you evildoers. Or Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Once again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace. But we may begin to worry, isn't this being judgmental? And didn't uh, Jesus just as clearly say, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, Matthew 7, 1 through 2. I suspect that our confusion is due, first of all, to a confusion of the difference between judging and judgmentalism. The Greek word, you know, translated judge, can mean, among other things, to choose, to esteem, to have an opinion, to make a determination or uh, disposition of a matter, to pass judgment, to pronounce a sentence or punishment, or to act as an administrator or executive. So we have to be aware of the context to know whether judging is used in a positive, neutral, or negative sense. Judgmental prejudicial, biased, bigoted individuals make far-reaching pronouncements based 
on limited information and with a kind of uh, absolute certainty that they are right and cannot possibly be mistaken. Furthermore, their pronouncements, their judgments are meant to diminish, hurt, or deny justice to others. They tend to speak in false and extreme generalizations. None of us, obviously, can help forming opinions of other people. But in judging as discernment, there are no um, moralizing overtones, no intention to harm or hurt, especially just for the sake of it, or in order to advance our own self uh, or our own ideas or our own group. If someone, if someone I work with consistently distorts and reveals what I have told them in confidence, then there is nothing wrong in my seeing or judging that they cannot be trusted and carefully choosing how much and what I share with them. I think it is probably helpful, as in many other areas, to see ugly judgmentalism and judging uh, and uh, uh, helpful discernment along a continuum uh, uh, to think of uh, judgmentalism and hypercriticism and uh, ill will being at one end of the spectrum and um, maybe naivete, gullibility, and lack of discernment on the other end. I have chosen to follow Jesus of Nazareth. That someone else chooses to follow Buddha or Mohammed or rejects all religious belief whatsoever uh, is, is an atheist. does not mean that they should be hated, ridiculed, disrespected, or denied the same rights, privileges as everyone else. There's a, a wonderful African-American wisdom tale, most likely based on a story um, originating in Africa. Uh, just as an aside, if you enjoy folk tales, get a copy of Tales Told Near a Crocodile, edited by Humphrey uh, Harmon. The story I have in mind is one um, I have heard read, but I've never seen in print. Uh, it, it tells how Brother Possum was convinced by sly Brother Snake to rescue him from a, a pit uh, that Brother Snake had supposedly been thrown into, uh, a deep, cold, dark pit, and, and then a, a rock thrown in and landing on his back. Not only that, but Brother Snake says he's cold, and, um, and, and he's traumatized, and, and he talks Brother Possum into... into um, uh, getting him out of the pit, removing the rock off his back, and then lifting him out of the pit. And then he talks Brother Possum into putting him into Brother Possum's pocket so that he can warm up, putting him into, into his pouch. Brother Possum, at each stage of the con, 
worries that Brother Snake is going to bite him. But in the end, Gullible, Brother Possum, does put Brother Snake in his pocket to get warm. And sure enough, once he is warmed up, Brother Snake bites poor Brother Possum. When kind-hearted uh, Brother Possum, who's moved the heavy stone off of Brother Snake's back, helped him out of the pit and put him in his pocket for warmth and comfort, exclaims in horror and surprise, you bit me, how could you do that? Brother Snake just answers, well, you knew I was a snake when you put me in your pocket. Wisdom, however, knows the difference between discernment, between judgmentalism and judging well. So Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Matthew 10, 16. On an earlier occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. I, I like Eugene Peterson's contemporary version of this uh, text. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they are out to rip you off some way or other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. I like that. The truth is that while most people enthusiastically embrace the doctrine of non-judgmentalism, we are, in actuality, uh, generally speaking, hypercritical and constantly putting other people down. What we really want is to be the arbitrators of what is okay and what is not okay without ourselves being subject to criticism or held accountable for our actions. Culturally, we seem to want freedom without accountability, praise without being praiseworthy. But I digress. If we can determine whether someone is a Christian disciple by their progress in love, which I believe we can, and which I believe Scripture teaches we can, if we can 
determine whether someone is a Christian by the fruit they bear, the results and consequences of their lives, then it is certainly possible to reflect on what it means or should mean to say someone is a man or woman of Christian faith without being judgmental in a negative sense. So I return to the question of what are the stigmata? What are the marks of a Christian man or woman? It will be impossible, of course, to come up with any sort of a complete, definitive list. Christian scripture itself never tries to do that. Instead, it tries to give us an impression uh, of what it means to be a spiritual or unspiritual person. So what follows will be more like a, an impressionistic painting than anything else. I can't even promise I'll manage to arrange things in order of importance. Although I think the, the cleanest, most obvious, clearest, most definitive mark of Christian discipleship is love. Love for God and love for others. And so that's where I will begin in the next reflection.